Hi, this is Chase Masterson, and you're listening to Women at Warp. and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jera. Thanks for tuning in. Today we have our crew, Sue. Hi, everybody. Grace. How's it going? And Andy. Hi. And today we're going to talk about season one of Deep Space Nine because Andy has just finished it for the first time. So we thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about sort of some of the characters and our first impressions of them, some episode highlights and lowlights and such. Uh, but before we get into that, we just have a bit of housekeeping. First of all, I just wanted to remind everyone about the Women at Warp Patreon it's a great opportunity to help us get the word out about our love for women in Star Trek um, to a wider audience. So if you head on over to patreon.com slash women at warp, you can support our work there. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash women at warp. You get lots of cool exclusive content. We're working on more, but right now already there is the exclusive ending to Grace's uh, sort of teaser for her Ferengi bodice ripper novel, A Price Beyond Latinum. We have such sights to show you. Yes. <laughs> and thanks so much to everyone who's already supported us there. We massively appreciate the help. We It's let us do some things like purchase business cards so we can help hand those out at conventions, which leads very well into the next item of housekeeping, um, which is telling you about convention appearances. So by the time you hear this, Star Trek Las Vegas will already be done. But um, I think Sue and Andy want to tell you a bit about Dragon Con. Yeah, we will both be attending Dragon Con this year. Um, I have been going for several years now. This is Andy's first time. But uh, in addition to just being around the con, I have been on panels for the last few years. But new this year, Women at Warp will have a panel on the Trek track. So if you're around, you should come hang out with us in person. If you're familiar with Dragon Con at all, you know that schedules change and they change often. But as of right now, we are tentatively scheduled for Sunday night at 7 p.m. in the Sheraton in the room called Athens. That is the Trek Track Track Room. And uh, yeah, I think that's it on that. Anything to add, Andy? We're excited. I'm going to be wearing cosplay. It's going to be awesome. Cosplay is awesome. Rad! Awesome. We also have some feedback on a couple previous episodes, and I think Sue is going to give those a read. So the first one is from Rebecca via our website, and it's about our episode, His Name is Mud. So Rebecca wrote, This was a great episode. It was horrible slash fascinating to hear some of the background info on the creation of the concept and character, and I enjoyed much of the discussion. I did, however, have a thought. I noticed that when discussing the TAS animated series episode, you refer to the drug as a rape drug, and you refer to Chapel as having been tricked and having been desperate and overwhelmed with her love for Spock. 
but never that what she did violated him. I hated this episode for many reasons. One being that it seemed out of character for Chapel. One could also argue that she has never developed enough in TOS for us to know what is typical behavior for her. One being the recurrence of mud, and one being that she violated Spock and it's not treated as a violation. Not that a cartoon show for kids would really go into that. This got me thinking that as people, even we as feminists can be guilty of this, we have a double standard when looking at sexual violation. There's a great episode of South Park about the double standard of how statutory rape and student-teacher relationships are treated. Please note that I am well aware of the overwhelming gendered imbalance of sexual assault victims and that any sexual assault, regardless of who the perpetrator or victim is, carries a gendered nature of power slash masculinity. But I do believe that had Christine been a man and Spock been a woman, the conversation might have been different. Yeah, I was really appreciative of this comment, and I think she's absolutely right. I do think that we definitely talk about how these drugs are not okay at all, but I, I agree we probably didn't specifically call out Chapel for what she did, and definitely we should have. And it made me think of some of the other times that this actually does happen in Star Trek. Well, there is definitely a double standard in the way that male victims are portrayed in our media in general and there are a couple episodes in Star Trek where I think that that happens which is the one where where Riker first contact yeah that's the one with BB Newworth okay so the episode first contact with BB Newworth and Riker if that had been flipped ooh, that would have been bad yeah part of the narrative that underlies this double standard is this assumption that men always want sex and so like from what we know from Riker we're supposed to think like oh this is funny because of course Riker always wants sex but he doesn't really have the free ability to consent because she's coercing him in that situation. And it's it's part of the the way that kind of sexism um, also really hurts men because that assumption that men always want sex is what leads to the narrative on the other hand that like boys will be boys and it's up to women to protect themselves from men because men just can't help themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. Also speaking of Riker, I know we have mentioned this among ourselves, but I always think about the host, right? Because when we first meet Trills, mm. the the symbiont is assumed to take over control of the host. But so that means that when Odan is in Riker's body, Riker can't consent to whatever he and Crusher are doing after she arrives at his quarters. Yeah, that's what bothered me the most about that episode. It's kind of violating Riker. It actually happens to Riker a lot, and I think that is because he is portrayed to us as, you know, such a ladies' man, so of course he always wants it. There are a couple other examples of this in Trek. I think the most, the worst one of all is the episode Unexpected from Enterprise, where uh, Trip uh... is assaulted and gets pregnant. But the whole thing is totally played as a joke. Uh, there's all these comments that are also kind of transphobic about like how he's the first man to ever get pregnant. And he basically becomes hysterical. Uh, like he's freaking out about safety and eating weird things. And then at the end, the way that they get rid of the Klingons is that he has to like show the Klingons he's pregnant, which is so humiliating. The Klingons just laugh at him and leave. So it's really, it's really awful. And it does show how the double standard that, that makes light of assault against men is really tied 
to the fact that femininity is really disparaged because it's like it's so humiliating for men to be feminized and like to not have the power in a sexual situation. And so it, it can be played as like played for laughs. I don't know. It's it's pretty gross. Which it's really disgusting when you remember that statistically speaking, men are a lot less likely to report it if they have been sexually assaulted than a woman is. Yeah, for sure. Because that for fear that they will not be taken seriously. It yeah, kind of curdles my blood just thinking about this episode. So did that sort of cover that that question for or that listener comment? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just I I really enjoyed that feedback. So thanks to Rebecca for bringing that up because it definitely needed to be said. Yeah, we're we're all about if we miss something, let us know. We want to know because we want to fix it. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, we have another comment on our mud episode from Roy, and this one was on the Babel conference, which is the uh, Trek.fm sort of listener discussion group on Facebook. So, uh, Andy, uh, do you want to read that one? Sure. So Roy says, Personally, I feel that the lovable rogue archetype is one of the most hackneyed in all of fiction, especially genre fiction. It is seldom, if ever, done properly, and often the times when it is done properly, the character has transcended the trope. Han Solo might be the best example of this. In general, the lovable rogue is some simply someone who is selfish and conniving but happens to be charming. In real life, lovable rogue types tend to destroy people's lives without a second thought as they are usually sociopaths with a good line of patter. Mud was truly an awful person and I can understand your dislike for the character. My only real complaint about the episode is that since you chose, however briefly, to include mention of... Other examples of the lovable rogue character in Trek, I think you did a disservice not mentioning the character of TNG, who, in my opinion, much better embodies the archetype that Akana, which is Vash. I find her deeply distasteful, and she is no better a character for Trek than Mud is. So that was from Roy about our Mud episode. Any thoughts on that? I think he's right that we missed her. I didn't really think yep. of her as a lovable rogue archetype, but now I'm thinking that that might be because she was a woman and I just didn't quite connect the two. I totally agree. I was totally thinking mostly just looking for men in the series, and I, I agree that she she fits that archetype pretty well. I agree with anyone who thinks Vash is distasteful. <laughs> I think at some point we're, we're going to talk about her more in depth. We definitely are planning a Picard love interest episode, so she'll probably come up in that. Um, she's also just a reoccurring character across uh, different series, so she will definitely come up again. I would just like to say that I agree. I do think she fits this particular archetype, and she is also walks the line of being distasteful is a good way to put it. Thanks for everybody who comments on our episodes. We really appreciate that mm-hmm. in all of the various forms. Um, it's really helpful for us, and it helps us bring up these sort of things that we've we might not have thought of in quite that same way yeah for sure all right so uh let's move on to our main topic so before we get into the specific episode highlights and lowlights of season one deep space nine i just wanted to ask you andy do you feel like deep space nine is living up to the expectations you had going in yes although i wouldn't say that i had very specific expectations i knew that there were a handful of people that i respect their opinion who really really love deep space nine grace being one of them um, so I was expecting it to be pretty good. I will say that um, the pilot was extraordinary. It was a, an amazing pilot. So like that really started the bar high. And um, I would say that I enjoyed the first season and I expected to enjoy it. So it, it definitely lived up to that. And Kira had been very hyped for me as well, especially since I mean, we talked about her in our first episode for our female characters. And so it was obviously a character that was near to dear to you guys. So I figured that I would like her as well. Uh, and I did. So in that case, yes, I would say it felt 
I felt it lived up to expectations. Awesome. Well, I wanted to start at the beginning with the season series premiere emissary and we you know we don't have to go into the plot too much basically everyone arrives on d space nine turns out cisco might be a bajoran god <laughs> uh, or like a, an emissary to the gods the prophets that's pretty much the like plot of the episode they find a wormhole kira scares off some cardassians but uh, i'm interested in your impressions uh first impressions of the main characters and you know even if it's not from just this episode but the first few episodes of Deep Space Nine. I don't know about you, Sue, but when did you like watch these when they first aired? Yes, I was definitely watching Deep Space Nine as it aired the first time around. And for me, I think this probably is not going to be surprising. I, at the time, was immediately drawn to Dax. Mm. Basically, ah, yeah. you've got a snarky lady scientist and I was all in like what year was this 1993 93 so yeah 10 year old me was all about Dax not surprising again what about you Grace I am all about the major Kira personally I love getting to see a character who is able to be you know hard-headed without being called a bitch also there's part of me that just really loves the fact that with the Bajoran people there is very clearly a cultural stand in there for the Jewish people so and that and Kira gives me a character to empathize with in a way that I, I have honestly not been able to with a lot of just straight up Jewish characters because there's a lot of there's a lot of cultural baggage that gets thrown in there and I think the Deep Space Nine actually makes really good advantage of creating a new culture from scratch so they don't have to have that level of cultural baggage with it but be able to tell the same basic story and have sort of an analogous story told that that really hits to the home of things it really meant a lot to me to see that also I just needed to see more tough girls in my life right then I actually started watching Deep Space Nine about halfway through because I had sort of, I think, mistakenly listened to those people who say it's not real Star Trek because it's not on a ship. I, I mean, I was also eight, so I'll cut myself a little bit of slack. <laughs> I um, had finished TNG, and I didn't really get back into Star Trek until Voyager started. And then about like around season four, I started watching Deuce Space Nine because I knew Worf was on it now. Um, and I got totally hooked. And, um, I think that, that for me, Kira was the big thing that hooked me in. And, uh, then I like went back and watched the original episodes afterwards. So now like I'm watching those episodes with a bit of a different eye figuring, like, how would I have thought differently not knowing where the series was going to end up? So Andy, um, what was your first, I'm interested in, in people's thoughts, starting with Andy, about Commander Cisco as the new commander. We had a comment from a listener on our Facebook page, Rakan, who said, I love that Cisco was portrayed as so vulnerable and hurting in Emissary. He was angry and demoralized, yet trying to support his son, Jake. When I was a kid, I didn't appreciate the leap this characterization represented away from the, quote, perfect Picard. And looking back, it seems like a real risk that could have easily backfired with fans. Yeah, I mean, I liked Cisco right off the bat. I was I was super into his character right from the beginning, and I, I don't even know if I can really tell you why. It was something about his his demeanor is very calm, um, but he was also clearly having a lot of emotions underneath it. I really really liked the scene where him and Picard meet. Um, and part of that was because it was super interesting to see uh, another, uh, an outside perspective of what happened to Picard with Locutus. 
because I thought that was that was such a great scene because Cisco is 100% coming into it resentful of Picard, obviously, and like grieving his wife. And Picard is still dealing with the after effects of what he was forced to do. And you can see that pain in both of them. So I just really, really loved that scene. And I loved that episode right off the bat. So I think that that helped me really respond to Cisco very, very quickly. I also really liked the way he interacted with Kira right off the bat, too. Because the first time they meet, Kira is like stomping around, which I'm totally cool with. And, As Kira does. Yeah, and I really loved the way she, she was like, well, if you don't want me to, <laughs> my opinion, then don't ask for it. And like uh, the just the complete aggressive nature, like I really identify with that right away. And the fact that Cisco's not intimidated, but he's also not patronizing. I think that's a, re- totally. it's a really hard balance um, to get there. Like he's not intimidated by the strong woman, but he also doesn't feel the need to talk down to her. And I was really impressed with that. And I, I so far throughout the whole first season, that has been one of my favorite things about Deep Space Nine is their relationship and how well I think it's portrayed. Just that whole opening scene with the two of them, I was, I was almost holding my breath like, oh, great, this is going to be another one of those taming of the shrew kind of things where dude has to temper down the woman's attitude and it doesn't happen. And that was such a relief because it is so rare and it made me so happy. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's like strong, strong men don't need weak women, you know? Exactly. Cisco is completely secure in himself and his command. Therefore, he has no need to be threatened by a first officer that has strong opinions and expresses them. That's how they sold me on Cisco. That was like the selling point for me. Up until that point, I was interested. But this was the point where I was like, okay, I can get behind this guy. Yeah, and I think uh, we'll maybe mention that a little bit more when we talk about the Kira-centered episodes. But I also really love the part in Emissary where Kira totally shuts down Bashir's like wide-eyed, eager uh, comments about how he's practicing frontier medicine. And she just goes like, that wilderness is my home. She is just the queen of the bitch please face also. (laughs) Yeah. Um, because I would say Bashir, not someone I super appreciated at first. First season Bashir drove me nuts. I kept tweeting yeah. things like, beam him into space. <laughs> like, <there> was- <laughs> first season Bashir is kind of a shit. Let's just say it out loud. I remember being really frustrated and kind of like questioning myself almost because this was the first time that one of my favorite characters was not the ship's doctor. Right. I I hadn't watched TOS all the way through at that point, but I had seen enough of it to understand the character of McCoy. And clearly, Crusher is my favorite ever. But I was just so annoyed with Julian that it was almost like a crisis of identity. Like, I don't like the doctor. What's going on? (laughs) I mean, he's so pretentious. And there's like, there's like episodes where he has dates. And I'm like, this is the worst day ever. It's like, no kidding. And yeah, so uh, I am like the best doctor ever. And let me tell you a little bit more about how great I am at doctoring. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh my god, if I was on a date with this guy, I'd dump a glass of wine in his face and take off. He's definitely the kind of dude who you can tell has had a lot of shit handed to him. Yeah. Which, on one hand, makes him insufferable, but on the other hand gives him a lot of room to grow as the show progresses. I just, like, I know too many first season Bashirs. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, some of my most um, popular tweets were me making fun of Bashir. There's this one where it's the one, the first one with 
Miles and Bashir are going to that planet where apparently Miles is going to become a, a god. Okay, cool. Everyone has one of those planets out there. <laughs> and there's this great screenshot of O'Brien's face just like, because he has to take he has to take Bashir down in the runabout. And I'm just like, this is the face of a man who's going to be stuck in for an extended period in closed quarters with Bashir. And then like two minutes later, Bashir's like, chief, do you not like me? And O'Brien's face again is just gold. And I was just having so much fun tweeting O'Brien faces. It was great. Aw, that's hilarious. Proof that O'Brien must suffer. When I was on the Ready Room a couple of weeks ago, we spent a lot of time actually talking about that relationship between O'Brien and Bashir and how it, it's like contentious at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I just finished the first uh, the first season and that's the only time they really interact in the first season is that episode. Well, O'Brien can only like roll his eyes so hard. So. <laughs> but there's this great tiny moment that I don't know if anybody else noticed but me but i don't remember what episode it is bashir starts to talk and o'brien acts like he has not talked at all and just can just like talks completely over him and he's just like mm. <laughs> it's so great especially since o'brien is such a a calm steady character he is not a shade thrower you know he's 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 a sincere well, guy <laughs> no that is that is true i just um i remember watching emissary and i was definitely annoyed at the part where o'brien's basically warning cisco about kira by being like have you worked with many bajoran women sir and it's like you literally worked with one now you've met another one who happens to be pretty similar, and you're just like, all Bajoran women, total shrews. <laughs> like, <laughs> like O'Brien gets a couple of those lines throughout. Like, he has a line in Family in the TNG episode where the Worf's mom is, like, late, and he's like, well, you know women. <laughs> like, O'Brien, come on, I want to love you, but you do, you say these things, and I'm just... Doesn't Starfleet have, like, a racial sensitivity seminar or something I can send him yeah, to? Yeah, just, like, don't generalize, buddy. But he is great. Or at least I think he's great. I know I'm jumping back a couple topics, but it's really interesting for me to hear you guys talk about your impressions of Cisco and that conversation with Picard, right? Because I, at the time, and I remember this specifically, I was a TNG kid. And, like, I'm still that TNG kid. So that confrontation upset me to the point of, like, Picard is a hero. Picard is my hero. And this argument, this confrontation is was so upsetting to me. And, again, that was at that age, first time watching. I understand it differently now. But I, I think people who might have been like me, who might have been like TNG people who really, really loved it, that could have served to turn them off from DS9. So I think it was a bit of a risk, especially in the very first episode, to have Cisco be so clearly annoyed with and resentful of the hero of the other series that is still running. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of uh, The Cage, where Captain Pike starts out saying, basically, I don't want this job anymore. Um, and I, I think it it ended up not working in the cage. And uh, it was it was definitely risky. I, when I saw it originally, I sort of felt similar to you, Sue, uh, in more that I just didn't appreciate 
Cisco's level of grief, I kind of was like, eh, whatever, get over it. But now as an adult, I think I appreciate more that he had that backstory and it, it became very important for him. And it set him up as someone who was able to be emotional and vulnerable and his relationship with Jake, which I think is super, super important and something Avery Brooks insisted on because there are so few representations of positive Black fatherhood in media. Yeah. And I mean, he's a great father. Uh, I mean, I, I again, only seeing one season, like, that's another aspect of Cisco that I really love is is seeing his relationship with Jake and him drop wisdom on Jake all the time. And, and it's just, it's fun to watch. I like my dad, but I, I would also like if Cisco was my dad. <laughs> I think he's a good one. So we've almost touched on all the characters. Uh, Odo, I guess, and Quirk being the, the remaining ones. I love Odo. I love how he's manages he he's like McCoy in the fact that he manages to be not friendly and yet likable, if that makes sense. I really like that. I just like his his straightforwardness. He says exactly what he means and sometimes that can be a bit harsh, but it's also really endearing to me because something about the way he does it just is is really cool. Plus he has a bucket. Who can't love that? That darn bucket. It's really true though that that Odo has this like weird kind of almost dichotomy, right? Because he's the the outsider. So he is like the data or the Spock. But he is also the one who just speaks the truth all the time and damn the consequences. So he's the McCoy. So he is both Spock and McCoy in one character in DS9. So in a sense, that's the ultimate dichotomy you could ask for in Star Trek. Right? Also, action figures of him come with a bucket accessory. That's amazing. The action bucket. Is it made of latinum? I think that's like a special upgrade that you have to get, though. I named my cat after him because my cat has a really cranky looking face and needs to spend at least 10 hours a day in his liquid state. Also <laughs> stretchy! Um, and what do you think about Quark, Andy? I'm interested as, um, you know, someone coming from seeing the Ferengi only in TNG to what I think it's, you know, it's not fully developed transition by the end of season one, but there's definitely more depth to them than you got in TNG. Yeah, I mean, um, I I would, I feel like Cork could be the lovable rogue, and I would be totally on board with him. If he was just a thief, like, I'd be totally fine with him, because that can be funny. My problem is they also make him super creepy sexually, and there's like this, this one episode where it's like a, a cold open that's just like a throwaway cold open in which he wrote into this woman that's working for him he wrote into her contract that she was supposed to have sex with him and i was like put that dude in jail like i don't understand and then it was just no you're not doing your job yeah it's just like it's just not addressed ever again and i'm like and that's not okay and that made me really uncomfortable and then that brought up a lot of things because people were treating me like no no quirk and i'm like listen i, I don't i i understand that i'm he's 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 a funny character. He's supposed to be funny. And the fact that it's Armin Shimmerman helps a lot because that dude is brilliant. But I don't find it funny when he's misogynistic. And so that... It's just more of that lovable misogynistic malarkey that nobody is buying. I can't find that funny. The, the stuff that does work for me is Odo and Quark together. Like the way they're always trying to maneuver each other. I really like that. And I like the fact that they both insist they hate each other and then they spend 90% of their time like hanging out. Like I'm pretty sure Odo spends like half his day hanging out with Quark and like side-eyeing him. And it's pretty great. They're frenemies. Frenemy. Yeah, exactly. The best of frenemies. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I think that's really interesting and fun and provides a lot of really funny moments because they're so different. But then they have to throw in these, these really gross things that Quark does. And it's hard for me to forget that. So I want to like Quark. Let me put it that way. I want to like Quark, but I can't quite get on board with him while they're still writing in these, these super creepy things that he does. Just you wait for profit and lace. Ah, no. Okay, I will. No. (laughs) I want, like, a warning when you're about to tweet that episode. Yeah, I mean, the really good episodes or the really bad episodes, people are always really excited for me to watch. I I got a lot of people who were really excited for me to watch, uh, is it Move Move Along Home? Move Along Home. Yeah. Yes. And I actually ended up like not hating that episode. I mean, I don't think it's good or anything, but it's also kind of funny. And I enjoy Bashir screaming for no reason and like flailing around. That was pretty funny. Just watching him jump around like a Muppet makes the episode in hindsight. <laughs> Just Bashir in panic. That could have been the entire episode. And I think people would have gone for it. <laughs> I Yes, I would have paid to watch Bashir watch do stupid things just for an episode. <laughs> so, um... You know, Kira actually has several major episodes in season one, uh, but Dax really only kind of has one or two. The one that uh, jumped into my mind is the episode named Dax, which is the one where she is uh, under trial for the actions of Curzon Dax, her her former host. And there's basically she's refusing to defend herself. And there's a question of whether the new host can be held responsible for the previous host because it contains the symbiont. So does anyone have any thoughts on that episode? Well, first off, I found the concept a little far-fetched because I think in a culture where this is like the norm, this probably would have come up before. There would probably be some kind of precedent for it, I would think. But it's one of those things where you just kind of have to go, oh, okay, this is how we're seeing these people deal with it. Yeah, I mean, when I was thinking about it, I was like, well, this trial is going to set some legal precedent for galactic law. But I think what their goal, I think, is sort of retconning what we learned in Next Gen about the Trill. I can get behind that, definitely. So there's that problem that we have with Star Trek, right, where we're talking about it both in-universe and out-of-universe. Sub-universes. They make everything fun. Out of universe, I understand the reason that they need to to sort of fix how they explained the trill previously. In-universe, you're absolutely right. You'd think that by now, there would be established law about who is responsible for what actions. I think it'd be old hat, yeah. I thought the episode was really interesting, but I thought it was really strange that the episode is called Dax, and she basically spends the whole episode not speaking. I had the exact same thought. I was looking forward to, like, Jadzia awesomeness, but she is, it's really about more like Cisco uncovering her past. And about his friendship with Curzon. It's unfortunate that through most of the first season, we only really get Dax as a supporting character, which, again, feels like a waste. Um, there's also this part in, like, the very beginning of this episode, one of the many Bashir hitting on Dax scenes, where she's basically, like, sort of half ignoring him working on stuff in the repel mat, and he's, like, another Actigino, and she goes, oh, it'll keep me up all night, and he goes, I can think of better ways of keeping you up, and they're more fun than drinking Klingon coffee. And I'm just like, ugh. Waka, waka, waka. He's so thirsty. I know. Like, <laughs> calm down. For, like, the first half of the season, he is just like... Hamana, Hamana, Hamana. But not just Dax, like every, every woman that comes, he hits on Vash. 
Like, he can't, he just has to hit on everybody, I guess. Although watching him get shut down by Vash is kind of sweet on multiple <laughs> levels. <laughs> totally. I kind of feel like he is, is similar to you, Tom Paris and Voyager, except for that I kind of can tolerate Bashir more at, like, in season one because he's not successful. <laughs> and I'm like, Paris is equally obnoxious in season one of Voyager, but is actually supposed to be charming and successful at this. And I'm like, oh, no. So then like Dax goes to Bashir and says, or sorry, Bashir was basically like, can I walk you back to your quarters? And she says, that's not necessary, Julian. And then he watches her go and then like kind of whispers under his breath, not necessary, Julian, but not forbidden either. So he's basically like, well, she said no, but it doesn't really mean no. And then he follows her and like there's a rule of there's a rule of storytelling with Pixar that you're supposed to like people for trying. It's possible to hate them uh, just because. Yeah. It like the message is that like him following her was actually a good thing because he comes across her attempted or the people who are attempting to abduct her and he helps fight and hailing ops um, is part of the reason that they don't succeed. So it's kind of, I don't know, I was like bummed. Except for he gets knocked right out. I know, I was just bummed though that like it was kind of, it ended up being a good thing that he did did follow her even though she clearly didn't want him to. Because even on their worst days, boys being boys is always the better option apparently. There is a really cool uh, 100-year-old lady Bajoran judge in this episode though, so I was down with that. Yeah, she was awesome. Oh, totally. She she had like no patience with any of them. I loved it. She's like, get to the point. Let's do this. Let's get this done. Which you've got to love, don't you? During any kind of sort of courtroom kangaroo court thing, just someone being like, nope, don't have time for it. Make your point. Let's go. I only have so long to live. Another episode I just wanted to mention because of this whole Bashir Dax thing is actually, I think, I think this is the worst episode in first season. I think it is worse than Move Along Home. And that's If Wishes Were Horses. Oh my god. This is the one with uh Rumpelstiltskin, the baseball player Buck Bakai, and Sex Kitten Dax, because people's fantasies come to life. Can I just say, though, for the record, this whole episode is way more fun if you mentally replace their Rumpelstiltskin with Once Upon a Time Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> I thought you were gonna, just going to say it's way more fun if you're stoned. <laughs> well, obviously. Uh, I really didn't need to see what Bashir looks like when he's having a sex dream about Dax. Like, that was not necessary for my <laughs> for my brain. Yeah, and this episode is also just, I mean, it was totally unsatisfying. It's basically like these aliens turn into your dreams, and then they refuse to tell anyone why or who they are. The end. <laughs> Um, but also we get to see Quirk's fantasy women as well as Bashir's fantasy women. So you have like two of the main male characters, their like main dream is totally submissive sex kittens. Wow, that's really gross. And we really don't get to see that much of what's in Dax and Kira's imagination. The only thing we get to see is like Dax imagines this kind of spatial anomaly that doesn't exist. And Kira imagines like a corridor bursting into flames. But those are really minor points in the episode. So I was I was disappointed. Would anyone else have really loved to have like Kira's fantasy be like a Swedish swimsuit team of dudes or something? <laughs> Just like carrying her around on a palanquin. <laughs> I also found it really interesting that uh, Bashir's version of Dax doesn't know how to science. And I think that's the sexiest thing about Dax. Yeah. You really agree with Dax in the sense of like, really? Yeah. That's what you want? 
That's really disappointing. Yeah, it's really disappointing. Um, and there's actually this scene where I think they're supposed to address that it's problematic where you have the sex kitten Dax and normal prime Dax sort of arguing and sex kitten Dax basically is like, oh, you're a cold fish who doesn't appreciate him. And there are a lot of words I would use to describe Dax. Cold fish is not one of them. No, it's not accurate at all. And and real Dax is like, is this what you want, Jolene? You just want someone who's submissive. So like, I liked that she got to say that, but I felt like the message was like, there's only two ways for women to be. They can be dumb and sexually available, or they can be smart and frigid. I do want to point out, though, for Bashir, is that he, at the very least, realizes something is wrong and backs off. So yay? Yeah, I mean, like, as soon as he realizes, like, when when he wakes up and Dax is all over him, he is really thrown. This is out of character for her. And he backs off right away. And that is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, C, C plus? C plus Bashir? (laughs) I mean, yeah, they they could have... (laughs) They could have very easily gone for the humor later of, like, they did have sex and then the Daxes meet and he's like, wait a minute, you're not, like, I can definitely see that happening and I would not be surprised if it were considered when they were writing the episode, but I'm glad it was not what happened. Yeah, I also just thought that um, the Rumpelstiltskin thing, like, Rumpelstiltskin basically makes Keiko and Molly a damsel in distress kind of situation to try to get um, O'Brien to do things and I was like, Keiko could totally beat the crap out of Rumpelstiltskin. This is so, like, I cannot buy this at all. That she's just sitting there being like, oh, my baby. At the very least, she could throw a plant at him or something. (laughs) Because we established in TNG that pot foo is a thing. Yeah. But overall, I mean, I I think season one of Deep Space Nine, like that that one and maybe Move Along Home are, I think, the only episodes that reach the level of awful that is a lot of season one of TNG. Um, so I thought that, you know, it was pretty impressive in terms of just general quality. There were a lot more standout episodes than there were terrible episodes. Yeah, overall, I think it's a good season. That's definitely really good for a first season of just about any show. Especially a Star Trek series. Yeah, but we have a few more to talk about. Um, so there were a few Kira-centric episodes, and um, we don't need to necessarily talk about all of them, but I'm wondering if there are particularly ones that uh, that sort of jump out at you, Andy, is having watched them the most recently. Yeah, I, I mean, as I said, I, I, I really liked Kira right off the bat and I I like the the backstory they have for her as like a freedom fighter that's that's now in peacetime and finding out that hey everything's not perfect now you know you got the the goal was met but the problems didn't all disappear and I thought that was a really resonant story and I think kind of timeless so I really enjoyed just like her overall arc um and every time it was a Kira-centered episode, it kind of it fit in with that. I mean, right off the bat, we get a Kira episode um, with the, what is it called? Past Prologue? Which is- yeah, which I was super disappointed did not involve time travel. Yeah. But it was about a guy from her past, Tana Loth. Yeah, and I mean, that one right off the bat is like her having to deal with the fact that things are more complicated than she thought they would be. And like her learning from that. And then the next one that really stands out for me along this arc is the one where they go with Kaiopaka through the wormhole, B- Battle Lines. Yeah, that's Battle Lines. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, Kaiopaka, we hardly knew ye. Yeah, she's great. And like the, the, the way she, the role she fills for Kira in that episode where she's like helping Kira forgive herself 
is I think just beautiful and beautifully acted and, and really hit me right in the feels. So I, I really liked that episode. Um, she also gets the one with, um, uh, the Bajoran farmer that won't leave. And she really has to like confront her new allegiance as, you know, a government official type person, even though, you know, that's not necessarily how she would have liked to see herself. Yeah, that's a really tough episode. That one's uh, progress. And I know that the writer originally wanted the main farmer, I think his name is Molibok, to um, be more of a villain, like um, less likable, less sympathetic. Because at the end, you really do sympathize with him. And then you also struggle with her over this choice. But I think that it's it's good that it was more nuanced. It wasn't so, you know, this guy is actually stalling progress. But, you know, he's he's also clinging on to this way of life because that's that's all he knows yeah i mean i i just i think that that's a really like there's this moment where kira puts her uniform back on and like she turns this corner and i just i think that's a really nuanced episode that i really enjoyed and i think it has a lot of real world parallels so the whole allegory of the cardassian bajoran conflict really resonates with me because i feel like it could be a stand-in for so many real life um conflicts. I mean, Palestine and Israel was the first one I thought of when I saw Ensign Rowe simply because of the camps and the feel of the the refugee camps that they go to. But like it's being deepened in Deep Space 9 and you can also see aspects of, you know, colonialism, so like old school Britain, India, you know, and then also like any really stateless nation like the Kurds, you could see you can see the Kurds in that. So I just think that my background is actually in international relations. So this stuff is super interesting to me. And I like that it's not portrayed simply. It's they portray it as being a very complicated conflict. And I, I like that immensely. And I think that's one reason why I like Kira so much is because she is the character in which they explore that most in depth. Yeah, for sure. And then, of course, the big uh, Kira episode in season one, which is commonly rated in the top 10 of all Deep Space Nine episodes. I think Cinefantastique magazine actually rated this the number one DS9 episode of all time is Duet. And, you know, that one was made, it's a bottle show. It's entirely on the station, basically because they had no money. And uh, like some of the bottle shows we've seen in the other Star Trek series ended up being a really great show. Um, so what, what, you just watched this tonight, Andy. So what did you think? Uh, and the rest of us watched you reacting to it tonight. I cried a lot. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a beautiful episode. It's beautiful because it's, this is, this is a good example about what I mean about how they're, they're really portraying the nuance is that, We've been set up to absolutely hate the Cardassians, and for good reason. They've done terrible things. But then, like, they also took the risk of showing the damage that does to the oppressor. I mean, it, it takes a piece of your soul, you know? And just watching Kira go through this amazing arc throughout that this episode where she has to go from, like, this deep need for vengeance, not justice, vengeance, and then like coming out the other side with this amazing forgiveness. It's beautiful. I was uh, like, and I have to say the acting was incredible. I was basically almost in tears throughout the whole thing. And then at the end, when like the climax happens and you find out that this guy is just like, he wants to die because he's so guilt stricken and he's like crying. Oh, right in the feels, man. Heartbroken. Yeah. And speaking of political analogies, this one is really one of the ones that drives home the whole uh, 
Jewish oppression in Nazi Germany analogy. I think, um, I heard somewhere even that the story is based off of a story from the Holocaust. Yeah, I mean, it's very clearly like the war crimes of, you know, the regular soldiers that were, you know, at the, at these, you know, Nazi death camps and how they allowed such horrible things to happen without doing anything. And they were, and it's like, they're not monsters. Like we want them to be monsters, but they were regular people that were doing monstrous things. And it would be easier for them to be monsters. And that's what Kira is going through. It would be easier just to hate this person and to keep wanting revenge. Mm-hmm. But it's so much more complicated than that. Yeah. It's really well done. It's incredible. It blows me away. So I was, uh, a lot of people were very excited for me to see that episode. And I certainly understood why after I finished it. Yeah. I think this is also my favorite uh, Kira Cisco exchange. Um, or uh, there's a scene where, like, Cisco is a tough decision because he, he has to protect due process for this guy, but he also, you know, wants to, like Kira, achieve justice for her people and honor the experience that he can't possibly understand that she went through. Or he originally says, basically, you, you're too close to be objective. And she gets to really passionately argue, you're right, I'm not objective, but I'm your first officer and I give you my word I will conduct myself accordingly. You once said we were friends. I'm asking you now as a friend, please let me conduct this investigation. I owe it to them. And he goes, you mean the victims? And she goes, that's right. The ones who moved too slowly and never moved again. I'm asking for all the Bajorans who can't ask. Let a Bajoran do this. And I think that's really valid that um, it goes to, to principles of restorative justice that why would you have this guy who is there to talk about these crimes he committed against Bajorans, why would you have him go to, you know, a Federation judge to to talk about what he did? Why wouldn't you let the people that he actually committed crimes against have a say in in what justice means? And this episode really epitomizes one of the things that I love so much about Major Kira being that she is part of this injured party of the Bajoran people, but she does not for one second uh, want to play want to play the victim or let herself be seen as a victim. She is someone who is very much taking not only things in their own hands, but is trying to kind of take things, not necessarily with stride, but just trying to roll with the punches as horrible as they are and kind of come to terms with the things that have happened to her. Yeah, there's also a, quite a nice Dax Kira scene where... Kira sort of unburdens herself about the the difficult decision she's making and Dax gives her advice. And I think that um, shows just how much potential there was for that to be a really strong female friendship. And I think it does, to some extent, pay off later. And that's an awesome thing. Good episode. Awesome. All right. Well, the last episode I want to talk about is the season finale uh, in the hands of the prophets. And this is uh, two characters that we, we haven't really touched on yet. One is... Is this this her first yes. episode, Veda yes. Quinn? Yes, this is the first time I see her. I did recognize her as Nurse Ratchet. I, d- I did recognize her. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that was the first episode with Wynn. Oh, she's great. And this is the one where Wynn comes to the station to protest Keiko O'Brien's school for not teaching that the wormhole aliens are prophets. And so it's also, I think, Keiko's most significant episode in season one. 
And Keiko is a character who gets maligned quite a bit, and we're going to do an episode talking specifically about her and other characters like that. One of our Facebook commenters noted that that she felt she was sort of written like a harpy on Deep Space Nine. But I think this episode is actually really good for her. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the the first things that happens is, you know, Wynn comes into her classroom and is like why aren't you teaching this? And she's like, aren't, aren't you going to teach Bajoran beliefs? And Keiko says, no, I don't teach Bajoran spiritual beliefs. That's your job. And it's just like, wow. I mean, these are two different jobs that they're doing, right? One is a spiritual leader. One is a teacher. And I mean, and I think one of the reasons why I like this episode so much is because this is obviously something that comes up in our society all the time. You know, where we draw the line on religious liberty you know, and how much do we allow religion to have a place in our public institutions? But I really like that line for her. And then later on, they ha- also have a conflict where Wynn is trying to manipulate her into softening her stance. And she's like, no, my responsibility is to expose my students to knowledge, not to hide it. So the answer is no. And I just really, I just really enjoyed these moments with her. Like she was very much, whether or not you agree with her, which I think that this whole issue is something that can be debated. Whether or not you agree with her, she sticks with her principles really strongly and in a really admirable way. And she's not, like, she respects their right to believe what they want to believe. She just doesn't think that it has a place in her classroom. And I think that's a valid position to take. Yeah, like, she's basically willing to say, I will acknowledge that that's the Bajorans call them prophets, uh, but I'm not going to teach kids that that is that is fact, because we don't know. And that, you know, if I start doing this, then where do I draw the line? And, like, what happens when we have to discuss these other things, like evolution and the creation of the universe? And Kaiwin, or sorry, Vedekwin, uh, sorry, spoiler, um, <laughs> goes well, we'll deal with that when we come to it. And it's obvious, like, you can't build an education system based on, you know, making exceptions. And I think that it's interesting that they use Kira to kind of show the Bajoran position more than Wynn, because Wynn is right from the bat, like... Like Eve, she's the extremist part. Yeah, and and Kira is much. She's she's on the same side almost, but also in a much more reasonable place. But I mean, I think it's like this goes two two ways. So their point is that they're teaching Bajorans; they should teach Bajoran spiritual beliefs. But it's not just Bajorans in that class. So like, if you start teaching one religion over another religion in a school like that just that's just a huge can of worms yeah and i i really appreciate the part where because i mean i i definitely side with keiko on this issue too but i agree it that you have to like at least try to empathize with the other side and cisco does a really great job of that when he's talking to jake because jake just goes like well it's stupid why is she trying to shut down the school why are they being so stupid and he he says it's not stupid that this is like their faith is their only thing that has kept them together and helped them survive the occupation. So you can really, you know, put yourself in those shoes and understand why you would feel defensive to have your up and coming generation potentially have that faith eroded. Because I just tweeted this episode, I actually have this exact line in front of me and it's a beautiful one. It's, it's a matter of interpretation. It may not be what you believe, but that doesn't make it wrong. And that's, uh, that's basically my philosophy yeah. when it comes to religion. Like, 
what one what is truth for one person does not necessarily make it truth for another and you have the right to believe whatever you believe but you don't have the right to enforce them on other people totally it's interesting because this is you're saying your background is in international relations not in the terms of studying but in the terms of how i grew up this is sort of my background i was raised by two parents who both went and studied theology in college and my dad is actually a doctor of theology so (laughs) i yeah so so religion was a big part of my upbringing and i actually personally i prefer the word faith because religion has a lot of weird trappings around it but i think the issue that is happening both in ds9 and when we draw parallels to our own world is that people see science and faith as being diametrically opposed to one another. But you can have both. Yeah, I think that's what Kira's position is. Because Kira Kira takes the, the position that, like, Keiko is saying that science is science, right? And that it's not philosophy, it's, it's something different than that. But Kira points out that, like, if you separate them, that is a philosophy. Yeah, you're still making a choice to separate them. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And you can you can have both. You can keep them separate or you can bring them together. And I'll be straight up honest and open. I am I consider myself a person of faith and I consider myself a person very, very interested in science and astronomy and cosmology. And for me, I can bring those two things together, and I feel like I get more meaning out of both from that. Mm-hmm. Some people want to keep them separate, and some people want only one. Mm-hmm. But the the most important part of this is that you can do any of those things. They don't have to oppose one another. They can work together and do so beautifully. Well said, Sue. And I think also another lesson is don't like set bombs and try to set up murders like Wynn does. Yeah, I was like, oh man. Yeah, those are just generally dickish Yeah, that's not good. (laughs) She creeped me out right from the beginning and I was trying to figure out if it was because, you know, she plays such a a infamous villain in the past but I don't think that was it. She, She does a really good job of being really calm and yet menacing. So like right off the bat I was like, dude, I'm kind of scared of this woman, but I can't tell, like, nothing she's saying is scary, but, like, her whole vibe is just off, and I was really wary of her right off the bat, but then, like, when it turns out that she's set this up and is, like, a literal murderer, she, like, sets up people's murders, I'm sitting there like, whoa, like, I thought she was creepy, I didn't know she was a stone-cold killer, you know? That was... She's, like, one of those really, really intense religious leaders where their followers are more worshipping their leader than their, their the god they propose to follow. And that's what Wynne is really all about. And the thing is, too, is she's she's the kind of leader that is super dangerous because she thinks that she is right. You know what I mean? Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's like she thinks she she's... She believes in absolutes. Exactly. And she thinks that what she's doing is completely justified. And that's one reason why yeah. she's so dangerous, I would say. And um, it, I was really surprised by her and in a good way like i think she was a really cool antagonist and i thought it was really nice to oh, have you wait yeah i was really nice it was really nice to have three of the women characters playing such important roles in the central conflict but there it's like a mm-hmm. completely 
organic conflict. Like they're coming at it from three different ways and it makes complete sense. And I always like it when that happens. Um, because I think, I think it's, it's rare that we have women in conflict in a believable and nuanced way. So I really enjoyed this episode as well. Totally. I have a quote from Louise Fletcher who said, Wynne wanted power and she was ambitious. She was sort of a Margaret Thatcher in space, which, by the way, my my favorite Wynne comparison now. Or as I used to say, I was the Pope in space. People would say, oh, you're doing Star Trek. Who are you playing? I'd say, think the Pope in space, except she's like an ancient Pope from the old days when Popes were ruthless and powerful and exerted their powers and fought wars and did all kinds of naughty things. So I really liked that. I thought the space pope was reptilian. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I do kind of wish we hadn't seen whether she was behind the killing. Like, I think it would have been really cool if there was a suspicion of that. Like, I mean, because Kira finds out without seeing that scene where we see Leela, the O'Brien's assistant, who turns out to be trying to assassinate Beryl. There basically this is this scene where she's talking to Wynn about like I can't escape anymore and Wynn is like, You gotta kill him anyway, and if you die, that's your your path. I don't think we needed that scene. I think it would have been cool if um we just saw like Kira basically accusing her and we were left to wonder whether it was really her or not, and then that could have been developed more later on with a bit more mystery at the beginning. There was really potential for ambiguity there, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, it's still, I still enjoyed. This led to the more bombastic ending, if you'll pardon the pun. Oh yes, the the Cisco. No. I screenshotted that immediately. <laughs> of course. <laughs> When you get a no like that, you gotta save it for posterity. Belongs to the ages. Yeah, Jared tweeted me and was like, why couldn't O'Brien just have told Odo? Odo was right there. And I was like, but then I wouldn't have gotten to screenshot that, Jara. Think of the big picture. (laughs) (laughs) The screenshot was the only good part coming out. I didn't really enjoy that ending, but uh, overall it was a solid episode. Andy, any final thoughts? Just that I'm really excited to keep going. I'm I'm really, really enjoying Deep Space Nine, and I'm very excited to see what's coming up, especially since I've heard many good things about the mid-seasons especially. So if it started off this good, I'm excited to see it get even better. Cool. And uh, Sue or Grace? I'm excited to watch you keep going. Just look <laughs> over your shoulder, being like, oh, here it comes! <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, DS9 is so, so different from anything that's come before. So I'm I'm excited to watch you watch it. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. One other thing I just wanted to say briefly is, um, you know, DS9 gets a reputation as being darker and grittier than the other Trek. And I thought that season one was actually full of a lot of really very Trekkian moments in terms of, in terms of the philosophy and that it actually, it rang very true for me to to sort of how I how I see Star Trek. Um, I mean, you have emissary right off the bat where Cisco is explaining to the prophets or the wormhole aliens um, that, you know, we're explorers, um, but it's not just about exploring the galaxy, it's ex- exploring our own potential as human beings. So there's all of these messages throughout season one that I think really uh, fall well in that Trek tradition and then ending with that that discussion in in the hands of the prophets about um, you know empathizing and understanding that just because you don't agree with something doesn't mean it's wrong and things like that. I thought that there were a lot of really nice moments. And I also just wanted to mention that um, if you 
ha- have not yet already done so, um, head on over to iTunes and uh, please give us a rating and review. It helps other people find us and know if this show is something that's right for them. Um, so we would love if you would take a couple minutes to do that. So, Andy, where can people find you elsewhere on the interwebs? Well, you can watch my further tweeting of DS9 at First Time Trek, and I'm super excited to start Season 2. And Sue, how about you? Where can you be found? More blogs and podcasts from me can be found over at AnomalyPodcast.com. And is Grace back? People can find me on Twitter at BonecrusherJank. Brilliant. And my name's Jira Hodge, and you can find me at trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com, or I'm also on Twitter at Jira Penguin. Thanks so much for listening.